Welcome to a special edition of episode 400 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're doing it today in front of an audience dialing in from around the world. So a special welcome to all of you who are actually watching us live. And bear in mind, please, that the views we're about to express do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, our pets, and certainly not the, the audience, as I'm sure we'll hear from you when we have finished up the main part of the episode. Uh, joining me today for the News Roundup, Michael Ellis, who's held senior legal and policy positions in Congress, the White House, and the intelligence community. Nick Weaver, lecturer in the computers in the computer science department and researcher at the International Computer Science Institute at UC Berkeley. Paul Rosenzweig, the founder of Red Branch Consulting. And for the first time in quite a while, Alex Stamos, a security technologist and adjunct professor at Stanford University's Freeman Spoley Institute. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Well, we ought to jump right in, I think, with tech stories driven by, this is the fourth week we've done this, the Russian attack on Ukraine. And you know, one of the things that we've been hearing about a lot is, oh, Russia is going to use all of its formidable cyber attack capabilities, and we haven't seen them. We've been told they may attack the U.S. or the West. We were watching for attacks on Ukraine. And the closest thing to a really sophisticated cyber attack that made a difference was what looks like, although it's not absolutely attributed, a Russian attack on Viasat, which took out a lot of communications capabilities that Ukrainian intelligence and command and control relied on pretty heavily and did it pretty permanently, bricked a lot of machines. Nick, are you pretty confident this was the Russians? And how serious was it? As I think it's highly likely because of the timing objective and how it worked. It basically was they broke into the update infrastructure for the Viasats and pushed a bad update that basically renders the modems unusable and unable to update themselves. And so this is the sort of deliberate sabotage you'd want to do to take down a communications infrastructure for good. If anything, the biggest mistake is they didn't have geographic targeting, so it caused a lot of collateral damage in Europe. So, for example, there's a lot of uh, wind turbines in Germany that were no longer able to communicate back to their base. And so this is one of the examples of how you can do very effective attacks in the computer space that have real world impacts on your adversary's ability to communicate. But also you have to be careful because you might get people that you don't want to piss off like, oh, say, the Germans who are now going to actually spend money on their defense budget. Yeah, although they probably were going to do that anyway. It, it, it may be that if, if you're Vladimir Putin, you say, oh, boo-hoo, poor Germans, and shrug it off. If you were the U.S. Cyber Command, you'd say, oh, dear, that's a collateral impact on civilians that maybe is a war crime. But the other thing is, is this is probably not the end of it. So we already have reports right now that Ukraine's primary internet connections are offline due to an attack. We don't know whether that's an attack for sure, but the connectivity has dropped off in the past hour. 
And given the success Ukraine has had using the information space, if I was Russia, I'd want them off the internet. Yeah. So Elon Musk should be uh, double checking his cybersecurity because they, they, he's got too many satellites for them to take out. But a software attack could do to Starlink what it did to Viasat. Or just observe that probably someday soon the Kessler cascade will instead be called the Musk effect when two of his satellites crash into something and render that whole orbital space unusable. And it's a little hard to get past it if you're going farther, so it could be pretty ugly. Okay, you know, there's been a lot of talk. The decoupling from Russia has meant that there's just been a pell-mell rush out of Russian cyberspace by a lot of U.S. companies that, you know, like Facebook and Twitter and Google is there, but, well, uh, YouTube is, I think, now not anymore. And it's kind of a mix of Silicon Valley boycotting or responding to U.S. sanctions by refusing to offer service. And the Russians say, you know, don't slam the door on your way out because you're not coming back. And that has kind of raised the question, are we doing something dumb in encouraging all of these Silicon Valley companies to leave? There was a Radio Free Europe guy who wrote a piece about the importance of getting information back in to Russians so that they actually know some of the things that are happening in their name in Ukraine and happening to their kids. And he said one thing that I thought was really interesting. There has been little effort to determine which voices work best for a given region or social group in Russia and to offer expert advice to reach those populations. Well, that's certainly true if you're Radio Free Europe. You just blast it into the ether and hope that people who care about your topics listen. That is not how social media works. Social media know exactly which regions and which social groups respond best to which messages. So that has led me to this question. I'm going to ask Alex the difficult question. Why are we letting Facebook walk away from this when we should be finding a way to milk all the data that they have about Russians and how to reach them. I mean, most of them still have Telegram accounts. They still have mobile phones. We could be sending tailored messages to individuals in Russia based on the micro-targeting characteristics that Facebook or, well, maybe Twitter, Google, YouTube have already identified for those folks. Uh, We could be doing a much better job of getting messages out than just blasting stuff over Radio Free Europe and hoping somebody picks it up. So what are the barriers to actually doing that? And uh, well, first, let me, let me just ask, is that a good idea? And, and then can we do it? I mean, I, I think it's a good idea for us to try to continue to get Western voices into Russia. Let's take a step back. Though. I mean, this uncoupling from Russia is unprecedented for lots and lots of companies, right? Like we we really don't have an example of a $1.5 trillion economy that is deeply integrated into the, the global economy being cut off like this, right? You'd think maybe the yeah. last time was Iran, but it's not like in 1979, Iran was this incredibly important other than oil and gas, right? Yeah. Uh, of the Fortune 500, probably 400 of those companies had offices in Russia, 
right? And so there's a lot of companies that are now trying to figure out how do they get out of the country or they lower their operations without getting their employees arrested. Yep. Now to the Silicon Valley specifically, Facebook has no people in Russia. Twitter has no people in Russia. Google and Microsoft do. So the, the difference here is between the kind of pure consumer social media companies and the companies that have combined social media as well as kind of enterprise software. And mm -hmm. if you're selling enterprise cloud services, you end up having people in every single country in the world. And so this has been much harder for Google, I think, because they have hostages in country. But for Twitter and Facebook, you know, what they did is they've isolated the state media. They've kind of expanded their use of state media policies in that, you know, Russia Today can exist still, but the ability to reshare it is massively reduced. We can argue like the effects are starting to come out now and it looks like Russian state media, the numbers for them have cratered based upon the numbers I have, but it's not completely clear how useful that will be. They have not really exited the Russian market in that they did nothing to cut off Russian people. The Russians themselves have now cut off Facebook's properties. And of all the Facebook properties, of all the Western social media companies, the, the only one that's really relevant in Russia is Instagram. Instagram was huge, especially among like young professionals urban professionals in, in, in Russia. They love to show off their rich stuff and their makeup and their clothes and their cars and such on Instagram. And so Instagram is very, very important. And Instagram is being cut off by the Russians themselves. They've been investing for years for this, right? It's pretty clear that Putin was very jealous of Xi's capability to control information. And for years, they've been building deep packet inspection systems. They've been putting systems on the edge of all of their consumer networks. And they have gone and, and, and done the blocking themselves. So I, I think one of the questions is, should we as a country be investing in ways to get around Russia's social media blocks? And there are some American companies, I'm not gonna name them, but there are some companies that are working very hard to still provide VPN services in country. One of the real interesting questions here is for a while, Russia was blocking access to the App Store on Apple because they're trying to prevent the downloading of VPNs and other circumvention software. And it looks like Apple is not gonna give Russia the deal Apple gave China, right? So Apple has given the People's Republic of China everything they want effectively, and they're holding the line. And so eventually Russia is gonna have to unblock Apple services or those iPhones become useless, right? They, be, they basically become useless bricks with complete disconnection from Apple services. So I think that will be an interesting direction to go. I think the government, it would be great for in a situation like this, for the US to have some kind of policy around trying to support the free access to data, whether that means, you know, supporting free VPNs and such, or, you know, trying to, to run advertisements. I like the advertisement idea for, to the extent people can get to Instagram, to use the advertising mechanisms to target Russians who might be possible allies in this with messages from the US, I think is great. And all of those tools just exist in Instagram, right? If you want to see the people who are interested in the right set of things who live in Russia, then those are buttons you could just push. But none of that works if Putin is successful in building his own great firewall. Yeah. Uh, no, that's, that makes sense. And uh, look, I, this is, in, in some ways, this interacts with the story we were going to talk about much later, which is the FBI targeting Russian spies in Washington with yeah. ads that only show up on their phone when they're standing next to the embassy or they're in the embassy. And it was pretty funny, you know, at least to an American, it seemed pretty effective because they picked on Putin trashing his head of intelligence saying, speak up, speak clearly. And they yeah. say, yeah, why, if you want to speak clearly, why don't you speak to us? And that's the same message that we want to deliver. Paul, I, I know you followed that story. Yeah, no, I, I did. But before we get to that, I just want to back up and, and ask and at least put on the table a really interesting question, which is, why is it that the tools we're developing for Russia are not going to be deployed with respect to China. 
I mean, granted, Putin's engaged in an aggressive, you know, war against a, a sovereign nation, so that puts him in a different category. But, you know, Xi is a genocidal actor who's killed tens of thousands, if not millions of Uyghurs. You know, I, I am struck, and this is, is off topic, but I, I was very much struck by the, what Alex said, that Apple's not going to give Russia the same deal it gave Xi. Well, that's not and, a moral. That's not, that's you know, a, that's, it strikes me that Apple's right in not doing that in Russia. Why, but why are we as a nation, you know, a, yeah, your question asked supporter question, which is why are we accepting of Apple and others doing that in well, This is like China. the old joke. We know what they uh, are. It's just a question of the price. And it turns out that Putin doesn't have a, isn't paying enough to get uh, uh, Apple to bend over. Well, okay. So to be fair, okay. So Apple has done more for the PRC I mean, than any fair. tech company has done for any authoritarian state, right? Yeah. There's like Apple and the PRCs up here. And then all the stuff around labeling people, state media and stuff is, is nothing compared right. to the fact that Apple uses hardware rooted DRM. They build digital rights management into the hardware of this device. And they use that to prevent Chinese people from getting access to the internet, from getting VPNs, right? That is just straight up evil. So I totally agree with you, Paul. Part of it is because Apple, because China salami sliced themselves into that situation where they allowed Apple into the Chinese market and then they changed the rules, right? Like pray I don't change them any f further. And they did, they salami sliced and the Ukraine happened overnight, right? And so I think part of it is Apple ended up setting this precedent for themselves in China very slowly once up. they were addicted to Chinese revenue and they didn't have an immediate event. But I totally agree. Like they're conducting a genocide in their own country. It's not an invasion of another country. Although the takeover of Hong Kong, you can make a lot of arguments around. I, but I, I, I also that. want to explain I this. I mean, I, I think this is the entire all American business, right? Because if if American businesses loved Russia, they love China, right? Like almost every major American multinational has a China strategy. And I think that we're all going to have to rethink what is an appropriate way for us to make money in authoritarian states that are currently genocidal and then might turn into these wars of aggression like with Taiwan in the future. And I think a lot of countries are rethinking I, what kind of geopolitical risk they're willing to take within autocracies. Yeah. The I, other I actually, thing is- I wrote a little go piece ahead. about, I'm sorry. I, I was just saying, I wrote a little piece about how Kenny Rogers had it right. You gotta know when to hold them and know when to fold them, know when to walk away and know when to run. And American tech companies with a few rare exceptions, I think Google's out, but most of them are still embedded in but they're China trying to get in to a great uh, yeah google's trying to get back yeah well they, google they, has been trying to get back for a while the thing is also that you do have to make the distinction between the businesses and government policy government policy has focused a lot on making that great firewall really miserable speaking as somebody who's gotten some of that government money to help make that great firewall really miserable Oh, mean, and that's why mean, the U.S. government has been funding Tor, right? That's why yeah, it's exactly yeah. this use case, right? To help dissidents yeah, gain no. access to information from authoritarian regimes. But to be fair, I mean, the Chinese yeah, I, model I here- to hijack us to talk about China. Yeah, well, I was just saying, because <laughs> China's a totally different story because their overall societal control, Putin would love to have this, right? But they have, yeah. you know, informers and companies, they have Chinese Communist Party members sitting within their own tech companies. They have informers in the US. Like I, I had a student who did like a private talk and then his parents got a meeting in Beijing, right? Like their ability to control dissent around the world is in 
incredibly vast compared to Russia. And so you have to think about all the cyber stuff, I think, to that context, right? Where their just human capability for both censorship and for oppression is way greater than Russia's. Russia's trying to like cobble this together, but the Great Firewall was not built in a day. I think one of Russia's challenges here is China also has this whole joint venture system with Western companies that one allows them to suck out intellectual property, but also allows for kind of enterprise cloud connectivity without connectivity to consumer services. And that is something that they have built up over years and Russia doesn't have that. So Russia's ability just to cut the West off from an internet perspective, but still maintain some kind of economic links is actually much more limited than China because they don't have kind of both the technical controls and then the business options to allow people to do business via joint ventures and, and how backbone connections work and such. So I, I apologize, Stuart. I, I did hijack this, but it, it, what Alex said just set me off a bit. To, I, I mean, I will come back to your original question, which is, you know, the FBI trolling Russian intelligence is just, I, it will have no effect at all, but it is one of the more delightful instantiations of using, you know, technology. Uh, as you said, it's tightly geolocated and geofence. So it basically, the post is right, it's basically tied to the Russian embassy and not even, uh, you can't even get the ads if you're across the street and a hundred yards away. So, and it's basically saying, look, Putin says you guys don't speak clearly. Speak to us, speak clearly. We'll listen, even if Putin won't. And, you know, feel free to come to us, baby, and talk about what you've seen. And I think it's a great thing. It was obviously much more meant for domestic consumption so that you and I would talk about it. We would talk about it on this show. Yeah, I, the yield in, of Russian uh, turncoats is going to be oh, zero. I, you know, I've got to challenge that. Well, those are the guys who are most likely to turn, especially if they think that, that their, their agency is being disrespected uh, uh, or if Putin has suddenly gone off the reservation. That's a time when a lot of people are going to have doubts. They'll mostly uh, stick to uh, the jobs that they have, but you only need one. Uh, and so this is an opportunity and we might as well let everybody know, uh, you know, that we're open for business uh, or that the FBI is. All right. I, <laughs> the, the last of the Ukraine topics I wanted to cover was Israel saying to its malware and surveillance companies, especially NSO, but I suspect they said this to all of them, they now, we bludgeoned them into adopting export controls on this stuff. And the first time they really use it, they say you can't sell that kind of surveillance gear to Ukraine because it'll piss off Russia, on whose goodwill we depend more and more in Syria. Nick, does this mean that we really have made a bad deal in encouraging Israel to develop this field of endeavor? And what should we do about it? Well, no and yes. The export controls they're putting into place have nothing to do with the ones we'd want. Fortunately, the biggest thing is, is I think the NSO group has pissed off the wrong Silicon Valley companies and is looking at a world where ops get blown much more. And so they're really limited to the dregs of society in terms of who they can sell to now. Um, I'm not sure Ukraine would have made the list. It was not, ex it was, it's, you know, democratic compared to Russia, but it, it's not a Jeffersonian democracy. Yeah, but it's certainly way better than the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Okay, that's fair. Okay, where, you know, Israel is for its own 
national security reasons, going to continue to sell products with enthusiasm because it helps them build a relationship with people who previously were resolutely hostile. You know, also and- probably some really nice, tasty third-party collection. Yes, there yeah. was always yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, and you know, to, to the extent that the uh, Israelis are staying on speaking terms with the Russians, and if this is you know one small facet of that, cutting off NSO groups exports to Ukraine, that's ultimately a good thing for us. We need to have interlocutors who we trust and whom the Russians trust. If there's ever going to be any you know hope of a peaceful resolution to the Ukraine conflict, right? The list of countries that fit that description, of we can have a confrontation with them in confidence and the Russians could have a confrontation with the confidence. It's a pretty short list. So keeping Israel on, it's a, it's a good thing for U.S. national security. Yeah, you know, maybe. Feels a little bit, Israel's been trying to have it both ways on a lot of things here. Yeah, that's what I, I think. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Like, they're calling the elected Jewish president of Ukraine is being called a Nazi. That should not be something that Anyway, I think this shows like that to the extent that Israel has like real politique when the actual push comes to shove, things like incredibly, you know, the bombing of the Holocaust Memorial in Ukraine doesn't rise to the level of them criticizing it because of the real politique that they want to keep Russia happy. I find it a little disgusting. And it, it, I have, I've lost a lot of respect for Israel during this whole thing. Yeah. Um, I think a number uh, of people in DC, yeah. that's going to be true. Uh, I, I think they're uh, playing it both uh, ways uh, in a way that's very dangerous a- for them. I'm I'm with Alex unless there's a unless they've gotten a, a request of which we are not publicly aware from the United States to maintain this open channel. In which case, I might revise my opinion. But otherwise, if they're acting on their own uh, realpolitik, I'm with Alex. They've made a bad moral choice, and their entire zeitgeist has been and should be. You know, we are the product of bad moral choices. We take the moral high road. That's why we were all so disappointed with Sabra and Shatila back in the '80s. It, you know, they purport to hold themselves to a higher standard and to not do so now is, you know, as disappointing as those times when our own country. Yeah, but look, I, you know, they've got Russia operating on their borders now, fighting people they want fought in many cases, and then propping up people they would prefer not to prop up. But, you know, Russia is a major player in Syria. They cannot ignore them and they can't cut off communications or cooperation with them because of the decision the Obama administration made to say, ho, ho, let's send Putin in there and get him tied up in another swamp. I vividly remember all the smart people in the Obama administration saying, oh, this will turn out to be a quagmire for Russia. We, we don't have to object to their going in. It's turned out not to be a quagmire because uh, Russia has been willing to uh, engage in much more shocking behavior in order to uh, prevail in the battles they've fought. Uh, and now they're there. And uh, Israel just cannot ignore them and cannot cease to find a, a modus vivendi with them. So that's where we are. I wish they weren't, but I, I don't think you can hold a, a small country to higher moral standards than we would show. But nonetheless, we ought to be realistic about where their interests are. Okay, let's move on. Michael, in the middle of the Ukraine fight, and not uh, a coincidence, I suspect, uh, the U.S. and the EU have announced that they have an agreement in principle on how the U.S. can continue to collect intelligence uh, and data can continue to cross the Atlantic in the hands of companies like uh, uh, Facebook and Google and uh, Amazon. What do you know about this agreement? Now, that's right, Stuart. You know, it, this apparently came out of you know, personal negotiations between 
European Commission uh, President Ursula von der Leyen and, and President Biden, presumably when he was in Brussels over the last couple of days. So we've got a, a transatlantic data privacy framework, but a lot of the, the details are still to be spelled out. You know, at a high level, we know that we've agreed that signals intelligence collection is going to meet necessity and proportionality tests. What exactly that means in this context is not clear. And those are international law. But you know, those, words for, yeah. those words yeah, will be used. Those words will be used. Certainly be used. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, the Schrems 2 decision by the European uh, Court of Justice it talks about proportionality, but it, it really gives it very, you know, very short shrift. It's, there's not a lot of explanation about, about what this means. And, and critically, you know, European intel services don't even abide by these principles. You know, there was follow-on litigation from Schrems trying to hold France's intel services to account. And you know, the French court said, ah, well, there's a national security exception you know, to promote national security and public order in this context. That means we don't have to follow a proportionality standard. So you know, this is a, a standard that the Europeans aren't holding their own services to, but we've signed up for it. In addition to that, we've got a, a multi-layer redress system. We'll see what that means. That's going to involve an executive order from President Biden, probably in the next month or two, to create an independent data protection review court of individuals outside of the U.S. government who will have full authority to adjudicate claims and direct remedial measures. Now, again, uh, there's a lot of words here. What does it really mean? We'll see. I, I have trouble seeing how an executive order could create in the court that was would actually be independent. And maybe that's not a bad thing, right? If, if this is you know enough lipstick on the pig to satisfy the Europeans and at least set up a, a whole new process for Schrems, Otto Schrems to litigate this again and buy American companies five years before it's you know struck down and it doesn't actually change U.S. intelligence selection practices. That's not a bad outcome for this issue. Paul? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I feel very much like I'm in the Groundhog Day <laughs> movie. You know, I, I think that, well, I, I think a number of things. The top line is I don't think this will satisfy the European Court of Justice, because precisely for the reasons that Michael thinks it won't actually adversely impact U.S. intelligence collection for the next five years. I, I think he's, his analysis probably... And so it is trying to put lipstick on a pig, and the European Court of Justice has essentially said, we ain't kissing no pigs, lipstick or not. Schrems will be back there. Yeah, earlier, in, before we got on, I said I'd bet $1,000 to that effect. Nick rightly... Uh, corrected me and said, I should bet $7.02 or $702 because it's all about 702. And I think that's right. I do think that it is at least theoretically possible to create by executive order, you know, something with some degree of independence. The president, a president can promise that, you know, with four cause removal only and, you know, give it, give it as much powers as he can. <laughs> at least until the next president give. decides yeah. to countermand executive order and fire right. everybody, right? Well, like, yeah, that's right. It, it, it'll, 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 it'll end in 2024 yeah. or 2020 or even in 2023 if Biden feels dissed by the Europeans over something else. Yeah, you know, it, it is discretionary. Which is, again, another reason why it ain't going to survive ECJ review. You know, as for proportionality and necessity, you know, uh, though I, I have long felt that words like that in, in international law are fundamentally meaningless. You, you know, the reviewer pours into them whatever they see as their ultimate result. And that's another reason to think that the commission will be fine with whatever and Schrems will not be and the ECJ won't be. Yeah, that. End of story. Nice try. It, it's it's worth doing, I suppose. You know, there's an argument that you couldn't do this with legislation because the standing requirement won't let somebody 
bring a claim in court unless they can demonstrate actual injury. Harm. That- and, and we haven't... Actually, we should, before we leave this, we should give a shout out to people we know, Peter Swire and Ken Prop and Theodore Chikartis, whose idea basically the European Union stole and foisted on us. And so kudos to them for yes. our crea- creativity and absolutely that, I, I, that you know, buys, buys some time. And, you know, we worked with Ken back in the day. And so that's another Groundhog Day. He's still working on this. 12 it's it's impressive that he has had the continuity on this. And uh, and Peter Swire, who's been on the, he was probably on episode 30 of uh, the Cyber Law Podcast with his wife, has also been working on these issues for a long time. So it's a credit to them that they came up with a theory that is plausible enough to pass muster at the European Union. But I I think we all agree that we're going to have another round of this. My hope is that by the time we have the next round, Schrems will, or somebody like Schrems, will have brought 14 cases against Chinese companies. And the Chinese companies, uh, Chinese government will have said, this is what you want from us. Let us tell you where to stuff it. And at that point, the European Court of Justice will have to say, oh, yeah, we didn't really mean it, or bring about a economic disaster for Europe. So uh, hopefully she will bail us all out of this mess. All right. Uh, let's, let's move. While we're talking about the Europeans telling us how to write our laws, so we also ought to talk about how they plan to uh, exercise authority regulating our companies. The Digital Markets Act, uh, Alex, this is... I I, I confess this is probably the most sweeping piece of European legislation that I'm not quite prepared to condemn out of hand because there's a core of sense in it surrounded by a massive amount of anti-American BS. You want to talk a little bit about what the Digital Markets Act does and maybe you can explain how you feel about it. Yeah. So like you, I think there's actually some... The Europeans are right to really think about technology gatekeepers and to have some rules. I think there's a a number of situations in which U.S. companies um, have really abused their dominant position to reduce competition. And the most notable is back to Apple, you know, but to a certain extent, Google as well of, you know, there is a natural oligopoly in cell phone operating systems. We're not going to have 20 or 30 or 40 choices. And so I think the platform operating systems. Maybe in the future, it will be meta with the Oculus and some other types. But if you have an oligopoly on platforms, and again, you use hardware-rooted DRM for your own business purposes, I think that's a place that they really need to strike. What's I think there's a couple of problems with it. One, it's just like with GDPR, it's this broad sweeping language that nobody really knows what it means yet, right? right? And so we're going to have the same kind of thing with GDPR that six years on, we still don't know what GDPR compliant means. Right. And 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 the the answer is, you just need to take more European officials to lunch to find out. Right. Well, okay. So, and and this is, it is clear that the actual problem the Europeans have is that the top 20 internet companies by revenue, only one is European, Auto Group. It's an e-commerce platform in Germany, right? Big e-commerce site. One, Europe has one company in the top 20. There are nine American, eight of them are in China, right? And so that is the problem the Europeans are trying to fight against here is they want to regulate themselves into competitiveness, which is not going to work, right? Because the truth is, is the problems that Europe has around their brain drain of all their smartest technologists coming to the US and starting companies is based upon European labor law, the not access to venture capital funding, kind of um, 
you know, cultural mores against failure that don't exist here in Silicon Valley. There's a bunch of challenges that Europe has and just regulating this way is not gonna all of a sudden make them competitive. There are specific circumstances though that I think they complain about. One of the big drivers here is probably the Spotify situation where Spotify is now falling out of the top 20, partially because Apple's kicking their butt because Apple makes it, does things on their platform for their own music service that Spotify is not allowed to do themselves. And Apple wants to take 30% of Spotify's revenue. If I was the Europeans, I'd be super pissed at that. That is wrong. It is wrong for Apple to do that and that should be regulated. I think one of the, there's some crazy stuff in there though that a number of people are really worried about and that go directly against everything the Europeans have said about privacy in the past. One of the ones that I got in a lot of Twitter discussions this weekend about is the interoperability between communication platforms. That they imagine this magical world where you can have all of these different social media and messaging apps and they're all able to talk to each other, right? Lots of problems with this. One, we've had a, messaging service based upon standards that anybody, that lots of organizations can join. It's called SMS. It sucks, right? Like the standards-based, slow-moving, federated communication networks are not fun to use because nobody's in charge of making them a good experience and you can't rev, right? The, the reason people like to use WhatsApp is WhatsApp was able to control the entire communication pipeline and were able to change and make changes very, very quickly and to develop it to be really useful for people. And doing that in a standards-based process is extremely hard. So there's just kind of a basic problem there. Can, can you, can you significant... let me stop you just on this one. Can you open up WhatsApp now, say, okay, that's great. It's much cooler than SMS. And yes, if we open it up, it'll get slower to innovate, but wouldn't it be better if people could all use WhatsApp, even if they uh, right. if they were not using WhatsApp as a platform, instead were on Apple? Right, okay, so, so to take a step back, I think there's a couple of different layers of ways you could do this. One is standardization, which I think will be bad. Again, right. SMS, MMS, RCS is the latest version that shows you how bad that is. Okay, the next level is you don't have to do a standardization process, but you have to open up your APIs that anybody can interact with in your, your namespace. Couple of problems with this. One, if you talk to any European regulator, the worst privacy violation in the history of the world, the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody was Cambridge Analytica, right? Right. If you ask them what actually happened to Cambridge Analytica, they can never explain it of what actually happened, but they will tell you it's the worst in the world. It was good for Trump. The core of the Cambridge- That was it. It was good right, for Trump. Right, exactly. It was good. And it caused Brexit somehow. Wave hands, yeah. right? Okay. That's all bullshit, but okay. The core of the Cambridge Analytica issue is what power do you as a user have to give me an, a company access to your communications counterparties, right? Are you allowed to say, AlexNet is able to get access to your WhatsApp messages or your Facebook messages. The, the probably the most open any social network has ever been along the lines of the D D Digital Markets Act was Facebook with Graph API v1. This is in the era of when, this is before my time, but there's this era where a lot of people didn't think that advertising would be enough for Facebook. And so they wanted to, there's people inside of Facebook who want Facebook to be a utility that everybody would use. And to do that, they created this API that allowed anybody to operate with it. But that is what caused Cambridge Analytica because when you allow somebody else to communicate with that, then all everything that you can see as a user, all of the messages you can see, and then the metadata from users is also exposed to those federated systems. Right. So if you open up the API, all of a sudden, all the information is available to anybody who is part of that organization. You have to trust everybody so that you have be, given this information to, and anybody yes. can give away all the information they have on you, which is, right. you know, which, which right. we've like all if, known. If, if you had, yeah. Since, since the third grade, we've known that if you give away information to, to people, they can use it against you. Uh, right. But if you can't 
do that. Yeah, you can never have interoperability because you you say, I'm not going until I can talk to all my friends. I want to bring them with me. And uh, at yes. which point the data protection authorities say, oh, no, you don't. You, you can't give away other people's uh, phone numbers. Right. So if DMA forces APIs to be opened, then Cambridge Analytica will be nothing compared to what happens next. I just say, like, it, it is it is forcing an API that is more open than Facebook was with Graph API v1, which other Europeans say is the worst thing that ever existed, okay? So once again, the European Parliament doesn't really know what they're doing here. Now they put in there, well, you have to do it securely, but you can't just like put in the law. That's like, Europe can't pass a law saying doctors must cure cancer, right? right? Like if, you, if they did that, people would laugh at them. But that is what they're trying to do here, where they're saying provide complete op interoperability. Anybody can access anything, but also magically protect all their data. That, that just doesn't work. And there are European technologists who are lying to them, who are telling them you could do it securely, but they totally wave their hands around it, right? And it's really kind of, it's really frustrating for that. And then the third kind of specific technology that has been a huge privacy benefit that would be extremely hard to pull off and probably impossible in this scenario is end-to-end -end encryption, right? Like I said in my tweet, the biggest privacy uplift in all of human history was WhatsApp rolling out end-to-end -end encryption. A billion people, all of a sudden, their messages became unavailable to your colleagues at NSA, as well as state actors all over the world, as well as to WhatsApp and Facebook themselves. There's nothing even close to that, right? All of the GDPR actions, all of the e-privacy directive actions that the Europeans have taken in decades is nothing compared to WhatsApp making that one decision. And now they're trying, they're doing something that might force that decision to be rolled back. And so it, it kind of demonstrates how fundamentally unserious the Europeans are around these privacy issues and that it's just another cudgel to use it because it, when they have the opportunity, when their American company did something good to actually benefit privacy, not only they, do they not recognize it, they actively pass a law to pull, pull it back. Okay. And, and it's just, so completely ridiculously mind blowing that I don't even know how to to handle it because it's like I, I just I'm not sure possibly where we go from here, right? Like GDPR is at least something you can comply with. There's no way to comply with this and also live up to any of the privacy or security promises that any of these American companies have made. And so either it's going to have to get watered down or they're going to have to not operate in Europe. Or, uh, or they're or, just going to have to cut off. Or, or it ends with 20 percent of global annual revenue fines for multiple failures to comply with the uncompliable collected by Europe from American companies. What's not to like if you're a European official? Right. And so, and I think that's going to, I mean, 20% is more than the, probably, it's probably roughly close. Maybe it's more than the amount of revenue these companies get from Europe. Europe is now the third most important continent for most American companies. And if Africa keeps on growing, it will become the fourth, right? And so I, I think there is a limit to the amount the Europeans can say, we're going to solve engineering problems through law. Yo, that at some point it's going to have to, I mean, probably what happens is it gets tied up in courts for decades and nothing really comes of it. But, you know, I, I refer to you guys to what's the more likely litigation strategy here. Yeah, uh, it, for sure. There's lots of litigation to come on this and we'll see. You're right. At some point, the Europeans may think, God, as a strategy, this hasn't worked for 50 years regulating our way to competitiveness. But right now, I, they're not getting any pushback in the U.S. The U.S. is kind of said, right. oh, don't pick on U.S. companies, really, please. But nobody paid any attention to that. And the enthusiasm for regulation is transatlantic. Uh, and, you know, even I say, yeah, these guys are exploiting the network effect to the point of abusing it. And legislation that recognized that and tried to deal with specific network effect abuses, I'd support in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, look, what... I mean, I, I kind of wish if Google got better about 
not, I mean, the problem is Google search is effectively a natural, a natural monopoly, right? Of yeah. all of these things, like messengers are not a natural monopoly. Social media is not a natural monopoly. The two things that are, are operating systems, because you just can't support, people can't write apps for 20 operating systems, writing them for iOS and Android is enough of a pain in the butt, right? So operating systems and search, because search is just such an incredibly difficult problem that you'd have to spend literally a hundred billion dollars probably to compete with Google at this point you to know, build a search engine of the same quality. You know, it's funny. So I, I, I use, think, I like, use Bing the, a lot and it, it's not terrible. It's fine. You know, I, when, <laughs> okay. when, 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 when I don't like the results, I go to Google, but I use Big Bing right. and it is adequate right. for... 85% of my searches. Right. So Microsoft, one of the largest corporations in the world, has been working on Bing for decades, and it is adequate. So that, that I mean, I'm just saying that I, I feel like that proves <laughs> yeah, the point a little okay. bit. Like, it would be, you couldn't go to a venture capitalist and raise enough money just to compete no, against Google. Fair enough. So I think, like, on those natural oligopolies or monopolies, I, I wish the companies would just, I just wish Apple would ship iMessage for Android and then cut their rates and then create alternative payment schemes in the App Store and that Google would, you know, reduce kind of some of the things they've done to Yelp and Spotify and such from an integration perspective. I wish American companies would just, you know, kind of preempt this so that we don't have to deal with like these ridiculous, ridiculous requirements. But, you know, unfortunately they, they were abusive. The, the other thing that's really angering here is that the US and EU from a cultural, like of what they want on the internet are like this. And then China is over here right? And there are eight Chinese companies now in the top 20. And so while the US and Europe fight over Schrems 2 and DMA and all this over these, what are effectively tiny differences, then state controlled enterprises that have direct links to the Ministry of State Security and the People's Liberation Army are becoming dominant on the internet. And so like that's also kind of drives me nuts here is that if the Europeans don't like the American internet, boy, are, are they going to not like the Chinese internet, right? And so I wish we could come to some kind of peaceful agreement here around some of these regulatory things so we could continue to build a free internet where people do have some civil liberties, where you don't have Chinese Communist Party censorship built directly into the algorithm where you have at least lawful process around things like 702 and FISA and and not like have get distracted by this for the next decade while China runs away with it. Uh, I'd, I'd love that. I do not expect it. I think the European Union was founded on the fundamental strategy of sounding like America's ally on military matters and sticking it to us at every opportunity on economic matters. Uh, and everybody else is irrelevant from there. They really can't see past the United States when it comes to uh, thinking about their economic future or who is the main enemy. Um, so uh, I don't expect that to change. Let's finish up a couple more t stories, though. Lapsus, Nick, for a while there, they were everybody, everybody was saying, God, they're so good. They're getting all this data. They've taken down all these people. Microsoft, source code, NVIDIA, and Okta. And now it turns out it's like five kids under 21. Annoyingly pestilent teenagers. <laughs> um, that... Really, they're a smash and grab operation that relies very heavily on social engineering, which works really well. One of their big tricks is they are bold. Fortune favors the bold in that space. The other thing is, is that one of the things they really rely on is SIM swapping. So this is you pay a Verizon employee 20 grand a month to redirect three or four phone lines a month. And all that SMS uh, two-factor authentication is useless as a consequence. The other thing is, is the UCTA or however you pronounce it, that's 
Okta? Is that really Okta? That's really concerning because the what their business is is identity for all this zero trust business. That really so much of the zero trust business is marketing for an outsourced identity provider. But this means if your identity provider's customer service portal gets compromised by somebody who can reset passwords, you have to wonder about what of your systems were affected. And when said identity provider basically is going shrug emoji, we don't know what these teenagers got you have a problem. Yeah, it looks to me as though, I mean, Okta, I, I understand some of their problems. The compromise was a third party and they brought in forensic folks. But to tell the truth, you know, we have a well-known concept of iatrogenic injury, which is where you go to the doctor and the doctor kills you. I suspect that this was lawyer-caused injury to Okta. They let lawyers tell them what they could and couldn't say and mostly what they couldn't say. And People freaked out saying, you're not telling me anything. And it's time to recognize that the reputational harm from a breach comes in very substantial part from how you handle the breach after you acknowledge it. And the fact that a lot of stuff was compromised is not as fatal as you looking like a dick when you announce it. Also, I think you're totally right. Logmore. Yeah. The the takeover by litigators of Incident response has been a really bad trend. Uh, I worked on an incident, you know, I have a consulting side and still work with companies. I love doing breach response when it's not my breach. (laughs) It's actually a lot of fun. But one of the problems we have, especially in public companies, is you end up now with a law firm in the room representing every single possible interest. And so in kind of the the main meeting with the CEO, you will have a law firm representing the company that was hired by the company. You have a law firm representing the board. I was in one where there's a separate law firm representing the audit committee because there was a fight between different board members, different private equity firms were trying to use this as part of their, their scheming against each other. And then there's a law firm representing the CEO separately, right? And so when you have four law firms in the room, plus inside counsel, just the weight of discussion goes after all of the legal risks. So yeah, I, and the legal risks here are not existential. I've been in I've been in meetings like that too, and it is astonishing how you know one set of lawyers can be brave, but yeah. you get three sets of lawyers there, and inevitably it is the most conservative, the most reluctant to admit anything advice that gets right. followed because. Nobody wants to take the risk of saying, I think we should lean forward on this and having it turn out to be wrong because they know there are two law firms there that will make them never forget it. And you're going to get sued. Look, you're going to get sued. It's going to happen. And you're going to pay 200 million bucks and a bunch of plaintiff's attorneys from Florida are going to buy new boats. And it doesn't matter because that's not existential. What's existential is customer trust, especially if you're a company like Okta, right? And that is always the message I try to carry into the room with the CEO is what your customers want to hear is we screwed up. We figured it out. We're getting better. Yeah. It is if, if you are not going to admit you made a mistake, then it is impossible to say you're getting better. And the lawyers never want you to say you're making a mistake because they know in a deposition, that's the piece of paper that gets put in front of you. Well, you just take your hits, yeah. right? You take your hits on the litigation side to maintain the business. Yeah, because if you don't, if, if you know, Equifax is another company that uh, just booted the landing. 
uh, and uh, same problem. And they just never, they were so relentlessly trashed for the landing that people were happy to hold them liable for almost anything. It's very sad. So Michael- And I I hold this, the people responsible here, not the lawyers, it's the CEOs, because what the CEOs will do in the room and every other circumstance, they're the big- big cheese, the big honcho, and in instant response, they'll say, I'm listening to the lawyers. And this is the CEO's job. So I helped, I worked with Zoom on their stuff. The CEO wrote a letter saying, I, I am personally at fault here, we're gonna do better. And that was the start. Does that suck for their litigation? I'm sure it does. But it, litigation was not the existential risk to Zoom at the time. And so like, you need a CEO who has the guts to say, thank you for explaining our litigation risk. I am going to admit fault and I'm gonna be completely and totally transparent. So it, it, I, I've worked in many government agencies and we've always had lawyers there, but the lawyers at the end of the day, if your client is asking the lawyers to say there's a problem, if they're asking for risks, they're gonna get risks. Lawyers are great at giving you reasons to do what you already wanna do. And you have to give them direction if you're the CEO. You have to say, I want to lean forward on this and let them grab your coat and pull you back. But if they don't grab your coat and pull you back, you need to keep moving. All right. Well, uh, that kind of brings us to this ransomware report from the Senate, at least from the Senate minority, about some some case studies about ransomware, mainly involving Revol, and a little bit of pretty candid and discouraging discussions about how U.S. government agencies look to people who are living through ransomware attacks. Michael, what's the takeaway from this report? Oh, actually, first, where does it come from? Yeah, so uh, as you noted, this came from the Republican staff on the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. I guess, you know, now you'll have the lawyers in the room. Now that we have cybersecurity incident reporting legislation signed into law, you'll have those four lawyers in the room also worrying about, you know, are we going to get on the wrong side of regulators and uh, are we going to expose the company to risk in that realm as well? But, you know, look, the lessons learned from these case studies are interesting. The cyber hygiene tips are nothing new. You know, offline backups are important. Multi-factor authentication is important. The, the interesting part here is the, the federal government response in these case studies that, you know, the FBI is just is utterly unhelpful to these companies because the companies say, we thought that they were prioritizing their criminal investigations, which are good and necessary things, but the companies say they, they weren't interested in helping recover from these attacks, they were interested in making their cases. And CISA, you know, the part of the Homeland Security Department that's charged with, with actually helping these companies in critical infrastructure sectors, you know, recover from attacks, avoid them in the first place, CISA is just MIA on yeah. these issues. No one thinks to call them. They're not involved. And I guess that's yep. really so what it, uh, uh, do you, do you want. Do you want a no-show or do you want somebody well, who's, well, who's we'll hang, change, hanging right? around because yeah. of problem? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I mean, no, no, say, uh, and, and this is the fight that's now going to continue over the cyber incident reporting law. Uh, you know, you have FBI and DOJ with sour grapes over the fact that the reports have to go to CISA when a company is hacked and, and not to the FBI, um, because the FBI just doesn't trust that CISA is going to tell them in a timely way and that they'll be able to continue to make their cases. I mean, so th- their, their solution is, you know, create another reporting burden on companies. Again, give those four sets of lawyers in the room another risk factor to worry about. But I think the, the much smarter move would be just force CISA to actually share the information with the FBI in a timely fashion, make the government operate more, more efficiently. Don't put it on the companies. 
that's always been the answer that this was the plan and the FBI should stop getting so upset because it was going to get the data. Very surprising. I still don't understand why the FBI was so hung up on this unless they said, well, if we were getting the data, we'd send it over to CISA about three weeks late. And so maybe this is just them fearing that that's how they'll be treated by CISA when they're the redheaded stepchild. Oh, Stuart, that, that's far <laughs> too kind. The reason is that the FBI has believed that it is the queen of all agencies in the U.S. federal government and that everybody works for them. And they've believed that since the times of, well, since before J. Edgar Hoover. You know, it, it, this is turf and nothing but turf. And it's most of what the FBI knows, you know. And yeah, I mean, I'm with Michael, you know, uh, a single belly button is right. And if it's not working, we should make sure that CISA works and, you know, has the resources and the incentives to do it right and should be held to account when it doesn't do it right. And the FBI should be getting this information in, tw I don't know what the standard should be, 12 hours, 24 hours, but that's it. Yeah. I mean, people are talking don't, about 72. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, you mean from CISA to FBI? I feel like that should be automatic, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. There's, there's no reason this shouldn't be well, a database oh, yeah. that well, the I, FBI- really automated. That's, right. Yeah. that's right. Right. Um, it, that, like, it's a ticket that's open and the FBI can see it. And then there's somebody at a CISA desk who has to go triage it and then add a bunch of data to it. But that doesn't mean the FBI can't know that it's going on or they can't see, oh, we've seen those IP addresses. I, I think you, it has to be CISA because you can actually have informal conversations with CISA and you can have cooperations with CISA. No CISO is allowed to talk to the FBI without three lawyers in the right. room, right? Because there's always two FBI agents and one of them's taking notes and you're terrified of making some intimate mistake and getting run up on a 1001 charge, right? And you'll get like a whole speech from your lawyers. Do not tell the FBI anything that you're not 110% sure of, right? And so that kind of in the heat of battle, you can't cooperate with the FBI in a way. And right now there is a CISO at a major company that is under indictment from the U.S. Attorney's Office. And that has caused a huge chill in cooperation between CISOs and Department of Justice. It's not talked about a lot right now, but that prosecution is really making it that companies don't want to call the FBI anymore. So realistically, it's got to be CISO. Yeah. And especially because after being silent for like two years, they decided to add accounts for wire fraud and a bunch of other things for basically not being very forthcoming about a compromise. And so right. the, the prospect a, of- A company who is a victim of, yeah. yeah, it's ridiculous. And now like that, I mean, I know that all the US attorneys are like very separate, but they are messing up breach response for the entire country. Oh yeah, right and now. certainly for because the FBI. Nobody, the FBI. Nobody's gonna talk to DOJ. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is. I'm, I'm supposed to go talk uh, to uh, the FBI along with a bunch of private lawyers, and I'm sure this is going to come up. They really have been treated. They, they've been ill served by the Northern District of California in this and probably don't. Which is sad, we have great agents here, right? Yeah. Like the cyber division in San Francisco is fantastic. They're super helpful. And if I was a CISO, I would never speak to them again. I would communicate on paper from my lawyers. Yeah. Right. Okay. Two quick hits. Uh, uh, we can't let uh, this uh, come to an end without pointing out that Grimes, who is Elon Musk's baby mama, is also a uh, successful cyber attacker, and she admitted it. She basically DDoSed a hipster runoff to get them to drop a photo of her that she thought was going to get her canceled. Nick, is there a lesson? Don't confess your CFAA violations until after the statute of liberty limitations expire. So Michael said it that wasn't Michael said that, that, that Canada doesn't have the same statute of limitations and maybe not a statute of limitations at all on CFAA type violations. Is that true, Michael? 
Yeah, look, I'm not a Canadian lawyer, but my understanding is for serious crimes in Canada, there's no statute of limitations. And Grimes was a Canadian citizen who, if press reports are to be believed, she was living in Canada at the time that uh, this attack occurred, that she was in Montreal. So, you know, it looks like a case for a Dudley Do-Right and the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, see if they can always get their, yeah. their woman here. Yeah. Well, maybe she should just stay in the U.S. So, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we can extradite her to Canada, you know, to be a nice reversal of roles after the, the Huawei CFO extradition that we were trying with the Canadians on for years. And finally, in that uh, blatant podcast log rolling, uh, Paul, uh, there's a brilliant article in Wired just out today on uh, how to penalize Putin uh, uh, for attacking Ukraine. Totally brilliant article. I, I, I happen to know both of the authors very, very well, since one of them's you and the other one is me. What the people on the podcast probably don't know is that the .su domain for Soviet Union is still alive uh, in ICANN, has wasted 30, yes, 30 years trying to decommission it unsuccessfully, mostly because of, you know, I, I, I won't ascribe to them, you know, warm feelings for the old Soviet Union, but probably reacting to pushback from Russia that doesn't want it to die. Kill the sucker, kill it now. It's the least we can do to show nerd support for the Ukraine. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm with you. It's almost all malware.su. Yes, that's right. It's like it, any- oh, yeah, it's got malware spammers and proto-Soviet Union revanchists who want the Ukraine to be revived. It, it, go read it in Wired. Call your ICANN board member and yeah. tell them to do it. I, I saw also that ICANN got a carve out from the cybersecurity incident reporting legislation. Like they're not in the definition of critical infrastructure in the statute. So- ICANN clearly has some pretty talented lobbyists, I'm sure well-compensated lobbyists, helping on these issues. So, you know, yeah. an, another, uh, I, I, another data point to pressure them on. <laughs> I'm going to make a pro-ICANN argument here that, like, I, I think Gainward.su is fine. But on, like, punishing Russia beyond that, it is absolutely, to, to, to Stuart's point about getting information into Russia, but also from a intelligence and national security perspective, having a nonprofit that is based in the US that is mostly staffed by Americans, and then having the A root server be run by VeriSign is a huge benefit to the United States at multiple levels. And doing anything to risk that just for something that makes us feel good, I think would be a huge mistake. All right. I, I agree with that. Okay, that is the last word. Thanks to Michael, Nick, Paul, and Alex for joining us. Send us questions at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a rating. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been a special live edition commemorating the 400th episode of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. <laughs>